Tonight, I invite you to turn in God's Word to 1 John chapter 3, page 1022 in your Bibles there in front of you, towards the end of the New Testament. If you have your own Bible there, towards uh, the back of the New Testament, just before Jude and Revelation. And also looking at Lord's Day 48 of the Catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, page 895 in the back of the Hymnals that are there in front of you, 895, looking at the second petition tonight, your kingdom come. We sang at the outset of worship, God went up on high with a joyful cry and the trumpet's sound echoed all around. Now with loud acclaim, magnify his name, play the harp and sing, praise the Lord our King, he rules all the earth, shout his glory forth, let your praise abound. Let the music sound. Glorious is God's reign. Great is his domain. He rules all the lands, issues his commands, and their princes all gather at his call. Let him be adored as our sovereign Lord. We gather tonight to worship our God and it is such a blessing to do that because we 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 deal with so many things each day that when we gather and worship, it is good to be remembering who God is, that he's sovereign, that he reigns, that he rules. Tonight, his kingdom is before us, his kingdom rule. It's such a massive topic, and there's so much that we could say about that. We're using the catechism as our guide tonight to look at the points that the writers of the catechism lay out before us, and we'll look at that and read that responsibly in a few moments. But first, let us hear God's word from 1 John chapter 3, the first 10 verses. This is the word of God. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever for our instruction. For the glory of God. Second petition tonight, I will ask the question and we will respond together. Question 123. What does the second petition mean? The answer, your kingdom come means 
Rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, there is a comforting reality in the midst of this majestic instruction that God is ruling over all. The Son is at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling. And that is, we see it in that opening verse of John's letter here in the third chapter, that this God is a Father. We've looked at that already, and that is a beautiful Reality, God is a father and we are his children. And tonight we'll see the power of our father. I want to just make an observation here. There are those who make the charge that the catechism doesn't say much about the Holy Spirit. And I want to defend the catechism and to say this, that that the Holy Spirit is throughout the catechism. And we see it here again tonight as we're asking God for his help, for his rule in our lives by his Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. Without God's Spirit, we can do nothing. Without uh, the, the power of God, we are as aimless and directionless as any other. We cannot live, certainly cannot live as citizens of heaven. In his letter, John acknowledges that there are two kingdoms in the world. There's the kingdom of Antichrist, chapter 2, empowered by the devil, and there is the kingdom of Christ, which daily increases until the day that it fills the whole earth and has complete victory at the return of Christ. clear point that John makes is that those who are in the kingdom of Christ live like it. They practice righteousness. He says that here in the third chapter on several occasions. There's a heavenly ethic that comes with living in the kingdom of God, for we are born again by God into that kingdom. He says that here, that we're born of God, born of him, that we might live as he would have us to live. Well, why did Jesus come to earth? That's often a question we hear around the time of Jesus' incarnation. A lot of sermons preached on why did Jesus come, and certainly it is to... uh, Pay for sin. Verse 5 says, He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. But then I want us to consider how verse 8 brings us to this Lord's Day of the Catechism when it says this The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to bind the strong man, as He puts it in the, the Gospel of Matthew, as it's recorded for us there in Matthew 12. It's to take away sin, but it is also to destroy the works of the devil. The teaching of the kingdom of God occupies a prominent place in Jesus' teaching, not to mention throughout the whole New Testament. Indeed, the the dense book by Herman Ritterboss, The Coming of the Kingdom, looks at the multifaceted way in which the kingdom of God is at the center of Christ's teaching. And throughout the New Testament, he says this, or, or it's said this way by him in the introduction. The central theme of Jesus' message is the coming of the kingdom of God. It may be rightly said that the whole of the preaching of Jesus Christ and his apostles is concerned with the kingdom of God. 
Not just a teaching for future reality. It's something that's being realized now. Something which is to comfort us and to convict us and call us to be proclaiming the coming of Christ's kingdom. Jesus taught his disciples to be thinking of God's kingdom as present now and to be praying that it might be preserved and increased and all enemies against it destroyed till the day when God would be all in all. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he announced that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The opening of the Gospel of Matthew, he says that. He had come to do battle to usher in the kingdom of God, and he came to bind the strong man. The kingdom of God comes by heavenly power, not by political means. It is by the work of God. Before he died, Jesus declared to his disciples that they should not be sad, for when he would go away, he and his Father would come to the disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit. They would never be alone. They would be filled with new life, new power, which would lead them to live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, which is God's work in us, the restoration of his complete control and his, his uh, reality seen in all of our living. Paul would later say that though we live on earth and are to serve the Lord here and now, not to be thinking only of the future, but to serve here and now, he says we are nevertheless citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3. Christ came to wage war against our spiritual enemy to destroy the devil's power and all accusation that he has against us. When we gather in worship, we don't gather to hear God tell us how we are, how good we are, but to hear how great his love is for us and how his protection is over us. Of how He wants all to live according to the principles of his kingdom. And we need not be afraid to speak of those principles of the kingdom. This is one kingdom that is not partisan. There is no no weakness in the kingdom of God. There is no fault in the kingdom of God. There is only righteousness and peace. There is only goodness and light. When we pray, your kingdom come, The writers of the catechism pick up on that and they say when we pray that, we're praying that the law of God's kingdom would be our focus. Rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. As has already been said, there are two kingdoms, the oppressive kingdom of the evil one and the freedom-giving, life-giving kingdom of God for mankind to become more alive He must recognize the dignity of man, the direction given to man. He must know his common origin, made in God's image. He must know that what has happened to him and how it has delivered, uh, how he has brought into common ruin and how he can be delivered out of that ruin. Just as citizens who don't know the history of the country in which they live cannot be good citizens, so... Those who don't know the common origin of man cannot live as citizens of God's kingdom. They don't understand its ethic. They don't understand the one they are to serve. I was thinking about that this week as I've been studying with one of our sons the constitution and the foundation of this country. If the founders saw what, how liberty and the definition of that word was distorted today and 
freedom was distorted today, they would, they would shake their head and say, what, what, what's going on? No, this is not ordered liberty. This is chaos. The founders saw government as having the function to protect the natural rights of each person living together under just laws. Things have radically changed. God, as creator, calls all people everywhere to consider, again, their common origin and the problem. He made all people from one man, Paul says in Acts 17, to serve him. Humanity rebelled against him in that one man, Adam. Now all are under judgment for sin and can only be delivered from that judgment in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The way to life is to repent and to believe in him. Our prayer that he would rule in us by his word and spirit more and more, that we would more and more submit to him has then the focus of God, not of our wishes. Lord, help us to realize our own potential. Lord, help us to to get in touch with our inner selves that we might know ourselves better as we see ourselves so that we can be actualized. No, if prayer is going to be heard, it must be to the one true God, as the Catechism has already shown us in past Lord's days, the one who has revealed himself to us in his word. And our prayer is that he would rule over us by his word and spirit, so that more and more we would submit to him. Our sinful passions have made a mess of things. They must be subdued. I was thinking of how to illustrate that, how... How are we learning to be more and more living in light of God's word? Well, when we are first learning about the world and the structure of the world, breaking it down here to very basic, we get a coloring book and we get a coloring page and we just start scribbling. And we're coloring and we're making beautiful pictures, right, mom and dad? Those are beautiful pictures. But as we grow, we learn that there are lines there, there are boundaries, and that picture is becoming beautiful as we learn those boundaries, as we see that there is a definition to beauty, that there is a definition, boundaries, to that which is beautiful. God wants us to learn to color with inside the lines, to Learn what it is, what is beautiful as he defines it. We're, we're learning as we grow to move from unorganized thoughts or, or, or our ideas to, to mature and learn about what God says is good and beautiful. And so we learn that a life well lived is a life that's lived in obedience to his word. His word is a lamp, a light, a guide to lead us to eternal life. God's word tells us that if we believe in his son, we not only become citizens of the kingdom, but sons. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And God patiently works with us. He patiently directs us that we would learn that organization, that boundary that he has given so that we might see the beauty of his world. 
We pray that God would speak clearly by his word and spirit so that we might submit to him, no matter what others might be saying or doing. In our post-Christian world, truth has become a casualty in the war being waged. People throw off God's truth and they throw off sanity with it. Liberty is defined as being true to personal desires. Well, that's, that's Satan's lie. It's not a new strategy. He said that in the garden, didn't he? He said, you don't need to listen to God. You can be God. Make your own truth. What God wants to do, however, is to free us from our sinfulness to live in that right way, that beautiful way. Adam was to be the servant ruler in God's garden. His kingdom was ever expanding. God said, I want my kingdom to expand. I want you to be a part of that. I want to use you to to direct all of creation. To live with a Godward focus. But man turned from him. He gave Adam and Eve those roles and rules for life. But man turned from him. The devil came and tested their commitment to God's word. And we know they rejected God in favor of their own reasoning. But God did not give up on that expanding kingdom. Or the crown of his creation, mankind. He declared a plan to redeem his people. To remake his people. He remakes them inside and out. John says it this way, the one who has been brought into the kingdom of God puts on truth. He says that numerous times throughout this epistle. We need God to do that in us. When we pray your kingdom come, we pray rule us by your word and spirit. Well, secondly, when we pray your kingdom come, we're asking God to protect and grow his church, his people, that organism that he has set upon the earth by which he extends truth to the ends of the earth. We recognize that he alone is powerful to do that. Our methods of ministry aren't shaped by what we think will work or by what the world wants, but they're shaped by God. Our confidence is in the gospel, that it will be used of God, directed of God, to protect and preserve the church. The church represents the kingdom of God. It's divinely empowered and divinely led, not empowered by human ambition or for personal glory. Remember that during the years of the writing of the Heidelberg Catechism, there was a, a, a real devolution, a real deformation of the church, and, the, and there were many saying, what's going to come of the church? What, what's, what's the future? What's the outlook of, of the church? And perhaps we, we have that same thought today. It seems as though we come into a, something of a dark age regards to truth and God's word and his authority. So they, in obedience to God, set before themselves and those who would listen, again, the importance of God's word governing all things, for God is the supreme authority. The Reformers knew that God is the power of the church. His kingdom is spirit-authored and spirit-preserved, not humanly established or kept. Jesus declared to his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's our confidence in a day when the church seems to be in a sad spiritual state. Christ must preserve his church. Christ will grow his church and he does so through the efforts of his people 
When he says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And I will be with you always. That's the wonderful truth of God. Though he is great and glorious in heaven, he is also with his people. And his plan will not fail. He rules over all the earth as we have sung tonight. He says to us in our families that we are to teach our children at all times in every way. When we lie down, when we walk along the way, when we rise up. When we forget that there's a war going on, preparedness kind of falls by the wayside. You might be able to say that that even was evident this week in political situations in our world. There were those things floating in the sky and it seemed as though we were caught off guard, as it were. And we can point fingers and we can say, well, so-and-so should have taken care of that or so-and-so should have done something. But when we don't recognize that there is that there are enemy combatants, that there are those who are out to do us harm, we are not always as prepared as we ought to be. But our God does not slumber. He does not sleep. He will not let his people fall. He builds his church. Political kingdoms, political entities will fall. But our God will keep his kingdom forever. And he calls us to worship him, to live for him in the way that he has commanded. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not have any graven images. You, we've, we've looked at those commandments. We see what they teach us regarding worship, how we're to worship, who we're to worship. We'll go over those again tonight, but that is a strong directive for us as to how We are to live. We are to guard the good deposit, to sharpen each other with the word. We're involved in the war. It's 100 years since J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, was written, and there's been a lot of podcasts done on that particular publication. J. Gresham Machen was basically saying there are two ways of looking at or two camps in the church. There is Christianity, Christianity and there's liberalism. This liberalism that was seeping into the church was not Christianity. It was denying things that were essential to the faith out of a desire to accommodate the world's desires. God says, do not, do not fall to those conspiracies, to those lies. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying for God to destroy all of his enemies and the conspiracies that are brought up against his holy word, to destroy every force which revolts against the Lord. John sees the battle in front of him and he writes, the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. The opposition between Christ and Satan was foretold as early as Genesis 3.15. We're reminded that Satan has many schemes, but they will fall to defeat all of them. There are conspiracies against God and his people both inside and outside the churches I've just alluded to that have the devil as their cheerleader. Paul writes that it is the devil's desire to enslave and confuse people to do his will in case we've maybe forgotten who our enemy is and how he works and what his end point is. 
The power to deliver is found in God, in his word, in his spirit, in the church. The gospels make much of Jesus' power over the demons to be evidence of the presence of God's kingdom, of his proclamation that he has come to bind the strong man. We must also be aware of the less visible attacks happening today, letting go of solid, faithful teaching, forsaking gathering together as God's people, thinking that this is something of an, an, an extra. We're called to gather because we need to be reminded of God's word, to be reminded of who he is. How did the downward moral trajectory begin in this land? Well, there was some discussion this week in a in podcast I was listening to that it began, and I think this is no surprise, but it's important for us to remember that it began when the authority of God became second to man's progression, to his better understanding of himself or to his own desires, the word becoming secondary, not the supreme authority. When that happens, the walls will fall. Satan's very subtle in his work in the West today. He uses our own tools for our destruction. We, we heard of that recently. He distracts and he deceives. He fills our heads with all kinds of information, making sure that we think we're so... We're getting smarter because we know more, but what he's keeping us from doing is settling on the truth that we, need, we must not let go of. That which we think we know, but which is getting crowded out by all of the other information that we take in. Making us more confused, more divided. And our prayer is, Father, keep your word before us. Destroy our enemies and all the conspiracies against your word. Satan goads sinful man to pervert the definition of male and female. He encourages the idea that freedom means to be free, to do whatever is possible. Or what might be possible if we're diligent enough. He delights to see humanity rejecting restraint and rebelling against law enforcement, telling itself that law enforcement is oppressive, not protective. But when we pray your kingdom come, we do so because... We love God and our fellow man. We need lines left to ourselves and to the creation of our own kingdom. The result will be the obliteration of what is good through the criminalization of that which protects. And we pray that God would open sinners' eyes to see the destructive nature of rebellion against him. And the end point of this petition is that God would be recognized by all. When we pray, your kingdom come, we pray, do all this till your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. All man-centered kingdoms fall. The only kingdom that lasts forever is the kingdom of God. It is growing every day and will never be defeated. We must pray and work to see it grow each day. There are many hymns in our hymnal that speak of that, one that came to mind this afternoon as I was preparing to preach was this one, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Another one that came to mind was 
Rejoice, the Lord is king. Listen to those words. Rejoice, the Lord is king. Your Lord and king adore. Rejoice, give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. Jesus, the Savior, reigns, the God of truth and love. When he has, had purged our stains, he took his seat above. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice again. I say, rejoice. People of God, we are called to rejoice in the coming of Christ's kingdom, to participate in that by proclaiming the truth unashamedly, knowing that it will help those who are bound in sin, who are blinded by sin, by the devil. The word is this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things needful will be added to you as well. Amen. So let it be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we think about the matter of your kingdom, we know that the principles of that kingdom are pure. They are light. We pray, Lord, that we would Remember that, that we would be mindful of what we're called to do and to be, how we are to submit to you, to repent of our sin, and to trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation, to love our neighbor so much that we would tell them too, at the cost of of offending them, for we know the gospel, the cross is an offense. We pray that we would love them enough, that we would speak that truth, that we would be humble enough to submit ourselves to that truth that you, Lord, would be glorified, that you would be all in all in our lives. We pray for that day to come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. We're going to sing number 405. I was going to change the, the songs after I thought about those songs this afternoon, but I thought that wouldn't be fair to the organist. So number 405. We're going to sing number 405. I love thy kingdom, Lord. We're going to sing uh, stanzas, all the stanzas, all six stanzas as we stand to sing number 405.